This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. Of course, this is Matt Splain. So we... We are back with our very own chatty man, uh, Matt Armitage, to explore the world of bots and blood tests today. No, I have no idea what that means either. Hey, Rich. Well, um, partly this is a, a follow-up from uh, the late September story that OpenAI would be uh, introducing full voice uh, capabilities for chat GPT. That's the, the bot part. We'll get to the, the blood part later. You know, we save the blood till later. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the the bot part. So this introduction of chat is similar to the way that we interact with, you know, assistants like Siri, Alexa, Google Assistant, you know, all of those bots that we're already using. Mm. And supposedly uh, these updates were part of a, a suite of new features that would see chat GPT becoming a multimodal model. Um, I hate terms like that, but anyway, what it basically <laughs> means is it can interact with text, voice, and images, which, again, we've both been playing with this week. Yeah. And as is usual with these things, you know, I read the story in uh, September. I think maybe we mentioned it on the show. And then, of course, I promptly forgot about it until... Indeed. Yeah, until my own uh, not-so-digital assistant reminded me to check in again. Uh, and if you're wondering, uh, the machine with the unenviable task of looking after my brain is actually, of course, Richard. Uh, so it was <laughs> Richard who reminded me last week that the voice features were now live and available in the app. Yes, they were, although they were not showing up for some people. And it turns out that for them, uh, for it to show up in, in your app, you had to delete the app that was installed on your device and then reinstall it. And then uh, it would show you the, you know, the, the, uh, the voice chat um, thing. thing. Yeah, I, exactly. And that's what I did. And it showed up. And I'm kind of having the same issue with uh, Meta's new uh, chat assistance as well because that's not showing up in my app and i'm wondering whether i have to delete and and i really can't be bothered with facebook apps because there's so much data already oh, on my phone that, yeah, yeah yeah i, I i'm not going to do that anyway um so yeah if the features aren't showing on your version of chat gpt uh the app rather than the the desktop version as richard said delete it download it again and log back in and it should appear and ready for you to chat. Mm. So the the new voice feature allows you to choose from one of five personas. Uh, again, you know, like you can choose different voices for, for Siri. And then you can have uh, a pretty good natural conversation with it. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of the, the photo options, well, that's a bit more straightforward. You upload a photo and the bot then gives you feedback on what you've uploaded. Yeah. Um, now, before we go into those functionality aspects, let's look at the wider landscape. Um, and this is a, a thing I've been hearing a little bit about. Is interest in AI and tools like ChatGPT declining? Yeah. I mean, I read somewhere, I think it was on The Economist, that said that consumer searches for AI have declined recently. So I think we are seeing some kind of change. And we have to remember, though, that there are different sections to this. There is the, the the business use case for AI. And of course, there's the consumer 
use case. So these declines in searches, that could indicate a number of things. Uh, mm. It could indicate that, you know, people have played with these things and they're just kind of over it. Uh, or that, you know, they've looked at the tools and realized that in most cases, you know, these are paywalled products and any free versions only give access to, you know, very basic versions of the technology, which, you know, generally aren't very good. Or, you know, they've actually subscribed and they're using the tools so they don't need to search for them anymore. Um, or perhaps, you know, they've just gone the easy route and they've downloaded the Bing app and that means they've got access to ChatGPT and the DALI image generation for free through the app that Microsoft is providing. Yeah. So I don't necessarily think it's an indication that people are less interested. Uh, I think, yes, the novelty is wearing off, but in much the same way as it did with services like Siri and Alexa. You know, we're now getting to that ubiquity phase where we kind of take them for granted uh, and use them for all the kind of mundane things that they were originally designed for. Like timers and meetings. Well, to an extent. I mean, I think these more advanced tools, not necessarily such mundane tasks, but to be honest, you know, the number of times I set timers with Siri and Alexa is quite astonishing. I mean, the, it might be mundane, but it's still really useful. <laughs> yeah. But there's there's a whole kind of world of AI-assisted tools um, that people are integrating into their daily lives. I mean, there's a whole mm. bunch of them that I've integrated. I mean, I'm using ChatGPT, Reword, Grammarly, Midjourney, uh, Feedly. I'm using the AI features in Adobe Podcast. Uh, you know, there are probably a bunch more that I'm not even thinking about. And I'm sure mm. you've got a whole kind of, you know, bunch of them as well. For sure. I'm using a whole bunch of the ones that you're using as well. I'm, I'm even considering subscribing to the whole Adobe Creative Suite because there's stuff on there that I find interesting that may in fact help me with my workflow moving forward. You know, and the thing is, though, Matt, it's every time I look at uh, for this kind of news, there's always something that's piquing my interest. Yeah, uh, not just piquing your interest, but also pulling things out of your wallet, which Correct. is probably the most important thing. But that is, you know, that's kind of the point. They've become very routine and uh, very, you know, easily usable for quite a large section of people. Mm. I think there is that other group of people who are maybe a bit disappointed with the tools because they've listened to all the media hype. They've tried out some of the new toys. They've found them entertaining for, you know, a couple of hours, but they don't really see how they can integrate them or use them in their wider lives. Mm. Or, you know, they simply don't understand, understand enough about what's going on under the hood to, to apply them to their lives. So there's still a lot of misunderstanding around artificial intelligence and machine learning. There's still this trend to anthropomorphize the tools. I hate having to say that word. I nearly you got through it. it. Well, oh. I got it through it okay today. But I think these new kind of adding adding that voice element, adding that ability to speak to it naturally, this could be the functionality that kind of tips the, mm. the you know the the naysayers over the edge. Um, but I'll I'll go back to that photo upload uh, thing first, partly because I didn't really think it would be particularly useful. Yeah, uh, and so this is when you upload an image to the bot and it comments on it, right? Yeah, so I started with the image that I created for last week's show. Um, 
which I actually used Dali to create in the first uh, first case. It's a, a pastiche of a Victorian shopping arcade. Mm-hmm. So it analyzed the image. It broke down the elements. It indicated uh, what era the image was from, the Victorian era, based on the shop fronts and the clothes that people were wearing. Uh, it commented, for example, on the color treatment of the image, saying it was, you know, it's a sepia image, so it, now, it could be from that past time. Now, did could it tell that it had been created by um, its own companion AI? Well, that was the interesting thing. No. I mean, it gave me a great Ah. checklist of things to look for in images that suggest whether they're they're real or whether they've been, you know, confected by AI. Mm. But it couldn't tell with any certainty that the image was no more vintage than its own data pool, Mm. which kind of goes back to the point that we've made a few times. You can use AI to trick other AI. In this case, yeah. essentially, yeah. you're using the same AI to, to trick itself. Uh, the tools that help to check for machine-generated text, for example, can be fooled by simply upscaling the text in another AI and pasting it back into the one that said it was fake to begin with. So I tried it with uh, another few images, uh, real images this time, uh, although I guess the idea of real photographs is a bit strange as well because, you know, they're just recordings. Um, But anyway, I put in a a garden scene um, and it was actually pretty good at identifying the plants. It correctly guessed that it was a tropical garden. uh, And I was impressed because when I've tried reverse engineering photos in search engines, it's always been, you know, really hit and miss. I mean, one of the, the famous examples or early examples of that was me uploading my own face to uh, a very early version version of Google's uh, image search. And it came back with uh, a basket of kittens. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was one that always made uh, Frida very happy. Um, but, you know, and it even noted that there was a cat in the picture that I uploaded, uh, and it made a point of saying that uh, it's a cat and not a plant. Well, I mean, that's a good start, I guess. But um, looking forward, I mean, we've seen examples, but how how do you see this type of tool being used? Well, in terms of the pictures, I mean, obviously we know ChatGPT, it's not live linked yet. Um, mm. Yes, when you use it through the Bing app, it can access news stories, but it's still uh, a trained closed model. I think uh, its data goes up to mid-2022 or something like that. So its knowledge is limited in that sense of you know what's going on in the, the real world. Uh, for example, it easily identified the Eiffel Tower but it couldn't place the Palace of Justice here in Putrajaya. Although it, you know, it correctly flagged that it's a, an example of Islamic architecture. It was happy to tell me about Islamic architecture in general and mm-hmm. various motifs that were found in the building. So, you know, there are definitely uh, educational purposes for this. Um, you can use it you know, for uh, arts and culture, science. Uh, apparently, it can give you uh, fashion tips. I don't really know how that works, uh, although it won't won't comment on people. So it won't tell you that, you know, somebody's ugly or badly dressed or anything mm. like that. Um, you can use it for visual storytelling. So you can upload the, the picture uh, and it will tell you a, a a story about or come up with a story about that building. So I asked it to create a story about the 
again, the Palace of Justice image. And it wrote me a short story about the Palace of Whispers and a centuries-old sultan called Rafiq. Uh, I mean, it was a, a bit generic, but it, you know, it was quite charming. So actually, the, the image search function is a lot more u- uh, useful than I thought it was going to be. Mm, but mm. as I said before, you know, that, that killer application is the voice interaction. Mm. Um, and again, you know, you were the one who turned me on to it. So mm. how have you found experimenting with voice conversations with it, in, especially in terms of, you know, the, 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 the humanness in inverted commas of the, yeah. of the responses? Um, it actually shocked me as to how realistic it sounded with, because there's um, human-like pauses, there are ums, there are ahs. And uh, I, I think it, it genuinely shocked me when I used it for the first time that um, I ended up having, and I say this in air quotes, a conversation with the bot to the point where I think I was conversing for about 45 minutes uh, about you know my hometown and the surrounding areas and where I should visit and, and whatnot. Stuff I already knew, but it was interesting to hear it from um, a bot telling me where I should go. And, and it's probably sourcing all of this data from Wikipedia, stuff that I already know. But it was as if it was coming from a real person, genuinely. I, I know, and it, it's it's quite freaky. I mean, I haven't managed a 45-minute a conversation, but then I don't manage 45-minute conversations with people. This is probably the longest <laughs> I talk to anyone in any uh, given week. Um, but... I mean, just sort of backtracking a bit. So I, I, I mentioned there are five personas. Uh, mm. So far, I've only checked out Sky. Uh, I don't know if you've checked out any of the others yet. I have, yep. I, I landed on Sky, though. She reminds me of the, uh, the voice from her, which is potentially why I stuck with it. Ah, is that why it's chimed a bell in my head? Yeah, so that's probably yes. why I haven't, I haven't moved on. And I've... I found it very impressive as well. You know, when mm. we talk to assistants like Alexa, you know, those are a, a very kind of limited step towards this screen-free world. Um, mm. You know, this world where we speak to all our devices rather than interact with them through a control device. And, you know, you can't compare that kind of interaction, talking to Siri or Alexa, with that experience with chat. GPT, you know, one of yeah. the the recurring themes on the show has been voice and the advance of uh, large language models using natural language processing, and it's, you know, as my conversations were shorter than yours, but it's amazing how your interactions with the machine change once you're not typing anymore. I, I found, yeah, I found um, the asking questions was much easier and more natural than when I try and type them. And Mm. I found, or I am finding, that it's making the process of researching and searching for answers to things a lot simpler because, you know, you're not thinking about how to phrase a typed sentence for a machine. You know, already that, that, that act, that that translation of getting it out of your brain and typed onto a screen, it slows you down. Your thoughts happen so much faster. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go through this process of translating your thoughts, typing them, um, and adding this layer of trying to phrase them in a way that you think that the machine is going to understand. 
Isn't there still the same issue when you're speaking? Yeah, of course. I mean, the machine still misunderstands things, but it's so much easier and less frustrating for you as a user to just change the way that you phrase something to try another verbal command than it is to look at your sentence and think, oh, how am I going to change that to, to get it to do what I want it to do? Mm. Uh, and going back to that part I mentioned about the the people who try out these tools and don't see them as anything but a novelty, I think this is where it will grab those people because it is much more like having a normal conversation. Mm. And I'm finding that it's changing the way I think about asking questions because I can go off on tangents and come back. I'm not, you know, working through a checklist of questions. As you said, your conversation is just taking you down strange paths. It's giving you information. You're able to riff on the the information mm. and you go off in all these different directions. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it really, I think, matches my kind of tangential learning, um, which I find, you know, a little bit frustrating with the the kind of linear approach of, of search engines. Um, so during your, your um, trials with uh, The Voice, what do you think were some of the limitations that were most apparent to you? Well, I mean, just to go back to you mentioning her, you know, overall it is very kind of sci-fi it's like speaking to the ship's computer in uh, in yeah. star trek the the conversations themselves are very easy and as you said there's those natural elements to the speech the pauses the ums and ahs so they don't have that robotic element that you get when you speak with a lot of digital assistants mm. uh you can still tell you know it's not it's not human i don't think it's trying to be human but it is normal so Mm-mm. in terms of uh, limitations the the verbal misunderstandings which of course is to be expected you know these machines will get better at context over time but they're never going to be perfect because people aren't perfect at context either we'll get things wrong when we're we're talking to each other and misunderstanding each other i yeah. i guess thing that I notice most is the speed of the responses, not not in terms of the, the gaps between you asking the question and it formulating the replies, but in actually getting through the responses, because, you know, we, we're used to just scanning through things and speech is a little bit slower than reading. Uh, so yeah. it was surprising when I'd listened to an answer that would feel like it took you know a minute or two two minutes or whatever and then you look back at the text and you see how short the text is um you're quite <laughs> surprised because it kind of feels like an eternity when it's being read yeah. aloud yeah yeah now um how are businesses likely to incorporate these um advances do you think don't ask me i don't do business stuff no i'm, I'm just messing <laughs> uh no, I mean, there are lots of uh, applications, um, things like internal chatbots, uh, you know, for, for company use. So I imagine a machine that's loaded with um, with schematics that's actually conversing with an, an engineer who's out in the field in, in real time. You know, the engineer is saying, I can see the blue wire, but not the red wire. Um, you know, when you've got your head inside uh, – <laughs> a huge piece of factory plant machinery. Um, You can't always go and look at a screen, but you can talk and you can listen. So I think there's a, you know, a huge number of applications for companies to use it 
for their internal processes. Uh, in terms of, you know, business to business, business to consumer, look at me with all the, the cool words. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's massive potential as well. Um, you know, going to a brand site, clicking the microphone button to talk to the bot about the goods and services rather than going through all the process again of typing, uh, that thing of easily being able to find out what isn't, isn't in stock, you know, saying, Oh, is that blue t-shirt in stock? And the machine just saying, yeah, you can buy it. Just click. Um, much easier for you to raise uh, service or other issues that you have with with companies. I mean, I'm not going to go into that side of things uh, today. So depending on how things work out, uh, I want to have a look at the the business case for implementing AI and machine learning technology. And also because uh, in between recording this and it being broadcast, I'm actually doing a panel on this with the business applications for, uh, for BFM's uh, breakaway this week. So Hopefully that will feature a bit in next week's episode. Uh, and of course, you know, there are some sectors that are racing ahead with this technology. Others seem to be hedging their bets. But I have to say that I am really impressed with these new integrations. They do change the game. And once we see them being extended beyond, you know, the, the premium tier, once we see them coming more into everyday tools like search engines like Bing. That's mm. where we're going to see the, the worlds of search and internet browsing change rapidly. There, I got through it in just one half of the show. And you know what? It's been fairly sensible so far, um, which worries me. So let's see how weird things will go after the break. Yeah, folks, you tune into Matt's Plain here on BFM 89.9, the business station. Beating Fickle Mindsets, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome back to Matt Splained. Um, one thing I've noticed, though, Matt, is that we haven't had much uh, chat about the the new Apple stuff, you know, which which seems a bit unusual for us. Yeah, well, you know, September is the cruelest month. Uh, I know that T.S. Eliot <laughs> reckoned it was April, but that was mostly because they didn't have iPhones when he published The Wasteland back in 1922. So he didn't know what month was going to be truly bad. Uh, <laughs> September is when uh, iPhone users are taunted with the incremental utility uh, of new models versus the often exponential increase in their price. Uh, yes. Now, of course, yeah, now this isn't uh, just limited to Apple. Most manufacturers have their own regular upgrade cycles. It's more that, you know, Apples have become these standalone jamborees. They update their operating system. They do a bunch of product announcements. And of course, the phones come out. Um, but you know, not limited to, to Apple products. But one of the factors that often puts people off upgrading, other than the fact that spending over a, a thousand US dollars on something that's only slightly better than the one you already have, is the thought of migrating. Exactly. Crazy, isn't ah. it? Um, who hasn't thought, though, should I get a new whatever it is device and then said in their head, no because I can't be bothered to transfer my data from one device to another 
I'll do it next year. And it's something that, you know, it only takes a few hours, but we resent, I think, having to give up our free time to set up something that we've just spent an absolute fortune on. Uh, Mm. I think the the part that probably causes the most annoyance is the insistence of some devices to update to the latest version of the firmware before you can actually set it up. Now, Apple uh, seems to have realized this, and according to a report from Bloomberg via Mashable, because I don't have a Bloomberg subscription, uh, Apple has devised a way to update the phone's while they're still in the box. Uh, A doodad that the company is planning to send out to stores before the end of the year will wake the phone up and update it wirelessly before putting it back to sleep. Uh, Whether this will happen in the stockroom or at the point of sale, I'm not sure, but it at least solves one of those roadblocks that a lot of people have to, to upgrading. And hopefully it's something that more manufacturers will look into implementing for their devices in the future. Don't you worry that the company can remotely control the phone, though, and its OS? Well, for sure. I mean, I can imagine that all sorts of conspiracies are going to emanate from this. Uh, I'm sure Apple will put out some kind of security statement to accompany it. And of course, there'll be plenty of hackers, both white and black hat, who will attempt to to use this to, to break or control the, the phone. So we'll find out how safe it is, I think, pretty soon. Uh, now, I mentioned the uh, Facebook personas thing at the start of the show. Um, but as I said, uh, at this point, I don't seem to, to be able to access any of their uh, persona chats on uh, any of my meta apps. So I guess I'll have to hold off on uh, that one. But this next story uh, kind of linked to all of this. This is, I think, from the darker side of AI. This is a a story from Wired called Millions of Workers Are Training AI Models for Pennies. Now, we Hmm. know, or as we know, uh, AI models gobble up huge amounts of data. Uh, Major companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft you know, they're, they're purchasing huge amounts of the stuff to train their models. But of course, that data is no use for training unless it's actually been labeled and sorted. But isn't that the kind of drudgery that AI is specifically designed to do? Precisely. But in order for it to do that, it has to learn from data sets where it's already been done. And that often requires people to actually label and sort data so that the machines can learn how to do it, which has given rise to this kind of hidden uh, subculture of gig workers, often in poor and developing countries, who label data for the brokerage companies who sell it on to the big tech firms. Is this similar to the stories about the uh, social media safety monitors? Similar, but this is primarily about, uh, I think, economic exploitation. Whereas uh, when we talked about, you know, the the people who were uh, sifting out uh, harmful images from social media, that was uh, that was a mental health story mm. that just had a kind of side order of economic exploitation. So the the labelers do tasks that are similar to those awful capture tests that just refuse to accept I'm human, uh, effectively showing uh, 
you know, effectively showing algorithms how to tell the difference between, say, fire hydrants or mountains. You know, it's a bit extreme, but you get the point. According to Wired, the workers get paid anything from 2.2 cents to 50 cents per task, according to uh, how complex it is, which means that generally they're forced to put in very long hours to make even minimum wages. But because the work is flexible, a lot of people take it because it means they can work around other commitments they have, mm. like, you know, caring for family members. Mm. Now, you mentioned it's a, a hidden industry. Um how big of an industry are we talking about? Yeah, and I don't mean hidden in the kind of dark web sense. You know, it's not sort of shadowy or there's there's nothing necessarily illegitimate about it. It's just not one of those industries that most people think even exists. Right. Wired calculated its value at around $2.2 billion a year, which is pretty huge for something that nobody even knows is there really and, knows about yeah yeah and they estimate that it could be worth as much as 17 billion by the end of the decade such is the, the hunger for for data so you know you might imagine that in an industry that's expanding at that kind of scale that there would be the the potential to upskill and to demand higher wages but because of the the voracious nature of AI, you know, it quickly devours those data sets. Mm. Any specializations that the workers have is quickly eradicated and they have to start from scratch with a new training set. This is another of your working for the machine stories, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I used to make the, the point about the Amazon packing robot that could work for 24 hours a day, but it had to be fed the stuff it packed by human workers. So the this is kind of the, the flip of the machines making work easier for humans. We've gone to that position where humans are now feeding the never quiet appetites of the machines. So yes, this is another example of that. Except here, you've got armies of workers in their homes, crouched over their screens. So it sounds a bit like one of those Black Mirror scenarios, but at the same time, it's not really cinematic enough for Black Mirror, if you get what I mean, because it's just yeah, individuals yeah. sitting in their homes. Uh, mm. It's even been labeled data colonialism in some quarters because it tends to be primarily workers in the global south, in Asia, Africa, South America, toiling to provide these data sets for models that are used in richer Northern Hemisphere uh, countries. Mm. And of course, as with any kind of gig work, it lacks the protections of a lot of formal employment. Uh, and of course, this is the point in the story where we say, however, however, um, <laughs> but actually we're not at the however point. We're at the point of doing stories like this, which are actually flagging for the first time for most people that industries like this even exist, mm. let alone the fact that some people have actually been low-paid data labelers for close to a decade already. Well, that's cheerful, Matt. Well, I could have done a, a story about um, European countries using sniffer dogs to detect bed bugs, um, but uh, I don't think that would have been any better. I, I do have a, a, a more uplifting bug-related uh, story. This is from uh, Design Taxi. And this is the news that Microsoft has launched uh, a new program for people 
to detect bugs in its chatbot technologies. Uh, the program offers rewards ranging from $2,000 to $15,000 to people who can find faults in the machines that the company is unaware of or who can demonstrate techniques to influence the behavior of the machines. Now, Unfortunately, this isn't about making the, the bots say or do offensive things. Uh, you mentioned uh, a, a certain uh, program that you could uh, influence mm. to, to make violent images. We won't say which one. Um, but, um, you know, apparently it's not about getting them to, to do or say horrible things because that's not worth money. It's uh, about exploring and uncovering vulnerabilities in the underlying program and in the the structure, uh, like the logic structure or the reasoning structures of the machines. But I don't think this is the first time we've seen a company offer this kind of reward scheme. I half remember another story a while back where a company did something similar. I can't remember if it was OpenAI, which incidentally you know, Microsoft has invested heavily mm. in, or whether it was another company. Does it ring any bells on your behalf, another company that was offering yeah, this kind I, of scheme? I think it was fairly recently. OpenAI were, were opening up this thing, red teaming, I think they called it, or something, or ah, something so, like yeah, that. So, the... Yeah, I was, on the, I was on the right track. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, if you want to earn yourself some money, see if you can exploit Bing. Um, what would you like me to end with? <laughs> Um, have you got anything uh, a little bit more uplifting, perhaps? No? Uh, well, I mean, I can end with the blood of very old people. Is that uplifting enough for you? Sure. Um, well, um, I, I guess there could be a few vampires listening who might find it an uplifting story. So, yeah, why not? Why not? Let, let's try that. So this is from uh, IFL Science. So, you know, it's going to be fun. Uh People who live beyond the age of 100 have always been of interest to scientists, um, of course, who want to preserve them and mine them for longevity. And I mean that, you know, metaphorically rather than, you know, as kind of Futurama style heads in jars. Uh, <laughs> a recent study published in uh, one of my uh, favorite journals, Giro Science has uh, shed light on some common biomarkers, including cholesterol and glucose levels in uh, people who live past the age of 90. It's hoped that the findings may be a gateway to understanding not just how to live longer, but how to age with better health. The study analyzed data from 44,000 Swedes, and it tracked them for up to 35 years. And wow. out of that 44,000, uh, 1,224 lived to be 100. I should be living in Sweden. It focused on uh, 12 <laughs> blood-based biomarkers uh, related to functions uh, like inflammation, metabolism, liver and kidney function. Uh, and it also tracked, uh, you know, things from their earlier life, like potential malnutrition. Um, so Sweden spends most of its uh, year in darkness, from what I understand, which is Nice, because it kind of plays along with your vampiric cravings. Um, and what other stuff did the study find then? Yeah, sorry, I just drifted off into uh, living under a glacier in the dark and uh, just <laughs> appearing in the moonlight. Um, it would be ideal no, for you, that. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, 
those who reached their 100th birthday generally had lower levels of glucose, uh, creatinine, and uric acid from their 60s onwards. Uh, very few centenarians had a glucose level uh, above 6.5 at any point in their life. Uh, and while the study suggests a potential link between uh, metabolic health, nutrition, and you know, this exceptional longevity, it doesn't actually pinpoint specific lifestyle factors or genes that might be responsible for these biomarker values. But it is likely that factors like nutrition and alcohol intake do play a role. So mm. monitoring your kidney, your liver, your glucose and uric acid levels as you age could be beneficial to living a longer and healthier life. Uh, or you can just keep a cave full of data mining slaves to tap fresh young blood from, just like me. <laughs> well, what a happy little thing to wrap up on. Uh, thank you very much for that, Matt. My pleasure. Now, Quite as genuinely. usual... Yeah, well, I'm sure. Uh, as usual, if you want to follow up with what Matt's up to, um, with him living in his cave somewhere in the darkness in Sweden, possibly, um, you can subscribe to his Substack newsletter, of course. That's at culturepop.substack.com. Follow him on X. He's at Culture Matt. And LinkedIn, he's at Culture Pop and at Culture Matt. Okay, that's all the time we have for this week on Matt Splained. If you miss any part of this show, don't forget you can get it from wherever you normally get your podcast from. I recommend the BFM app. It's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. For BFM 89.9, my name is Rich Bradbury. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.